course, but if we cannot bring the Christ of the Gospels to our people, what do we offer them? Dr. Martin! I did this for granted. Issued by the Archbishop of Mainz. Where did you get this? Hüteborg. I bought it in the church. It's just paper, Anna. These words mean... nothing. It's no good. You must put your trust in God's love. Save your money. To feed Greta. Hmm? Father in Christ and most illustrious Prince, forgive me that I should dare to write to you. I make bold because it is my duty to serve you and to warn you of the crooked practices of those who claim to represent your grace. Christ did not command the preaching of indulgences, but of the gospel. Forward this to Rome. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. If the Pope can empty purgatory, why would he not do so out of love rather than for money? My God, who is this Martin Luther? Fritz? What? Dr. Luther wanted everyone to see that. And everyone will. This morning we are starting a new series that is entitled Reformation. We're looking at an event that happened 500 years ago led by a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. That's who you saw being played by Joseph Fiennes with the awesome ring haircut, which I was going to get in honour of that for the series, but thought better of it. Oh, you, oh no, you don't have it. That's all right, I thought... This coming Tuesday, in case you've missed it, is Halloween. So if you haven't brought a supply of lollies and candy for wayward children coming to knock on your door, you've still got a couple of days to do that. Many people don't realise, especially because of the evil connotations, at least in the costumes and so on, of Halloween these days, this wonderful American tradition we've imported in the last 10 years, Halloween is actually a Christian festival originally. It may well have had some pagan roots beyond that, but... Halloween is actually the modern permutation of the name All Hallows' Eve. And it's actually a date on the church calendar. Just like Christmas Eve is the night before Christmas, All Hallows' Eve is the night before All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day. So on the church calendar, November the 1st, is All Saints' Day, where the church traditionally celebrated um, the people who were legendary saints. And so the night before was All Hallows' Eve. And so that's where the name Halloween actually came from. Not all the stuff around candy and pumpkins, but the actual name. This 
Halloween, though, on Tuesday of this week, is not only another Halloween festival that you can figure out what you're going to do with that as a Christian, it's actually also the 500th anniversary of that event you just witnessed in movie form. 500 years since a German monk walked up to the door of his local church and hammered up there a statement of 95 what are called theses about this doctrine called indulgences. And to celebrate this, because this is a significant event in church history, we're going to do a short series for a few weeks before we hit Christmas, looking at the doctrine of the Reformation. I want to get you excited about church history. Are you excited? Look, I, I can see, I can sense it already, which is just awesome. So over the next few weeks, I want to unpack and look at what the Reformation was all about. This is the beginning of the Protestant churches. So not Orthodox, like Greek or, or Russian Orthodox, and not Roman Catholic, but if you were brought up in virtually any other church, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Baptist, Brethren, Salvation Army, keep going the list, all of those denominations are Protestant. And the Protestant movement is called the Reformation, and most historians date the beginning of the Reformation to 500 years ago this Tuesday. Botany Life is a Protestant church. So this is a huge part of our heritage, and I actually want to help you uh, kind of reconnect with your roots, if you would, over the next few weeks. And so we want to dive into why the Protestant Reformation happened and why it is still incredibly important for you and me today. This is not something that's old, dead history from 500 years ago, and who cares? As we're going to see in the next few weeks, the doctrines of the Reformation that the Reformers fought for and in some cases died for are still incredibly important. They're still part of our faith today. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Today then, I want to introduce you to this guy, Martin Luther. He is not the only reformer, but he is probably the one that launched it all and was the one who really made this reform movement go worldwide. And so I want to actually do a very different sermon today. I'm not actually opening the Bible for you um, we will come to the scriptures at the very end. What I actually want to do is tell you a story. I want to tell you the story of his life and help you unpack. So as we do that, we need to make sure we're all clear on who we're talking about. All right? Hold on. Let's get this going. Right. This is Martin Luther King. That's not who we're talking about. But when I say Martin Luther, this is who most people think of. American civil rights leader, died 50 years ago. All right? We're talking about Martin Luther. German, not American, 500 years ago, not 50, all right? And whereas Martin Luther King's great speech was, I have a dream, delivered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., Martin Luther's great speech, as we will come to in a little bit, was, here I stand, all right? So as we're talking about Martin Luther and his story, we're not talking him. We're talking... Him. Okay? Martin Luther. So he's a German preacher. He was a monk originally. And I want to tell you his story. I'm dividing his story into three kind of eras in his life. The first part of his life is what I call struggling with sin. So Luther was born in 1483, around about the time Christopher Columbus was sailing across the oceans to see if the world was flat or round. And Luther was born just a few years 
before Columbus set sail. He was born into a good Roman Catholic family, a blue-collar family. His dad, Hans, was a miner, but by the time Martin was born, he was the oldest in his family, Hans had actually become a small business owner. So he was in business for himself, but life was tough, and like many parents in that world, their greatest dream was that their kids would be better off than they were. So Hans worked very hard, and because Martin, as he went through his initial schooling, showed incredible intelligence, Hans was um, determined to send Martin off to university, and they managed to do that. Martin went off, and he got his bachelor's degree, and then he got his master's degree, and then his parents decided they wanted him to be a lawyer. Yep, there was an era in Christian history when parents wanted their kids to go into law. So they sent them off to law school. Just joking to those of you who are lawyers. Was, you know. So they sent Martin off to law school. He was a brilliant scholar, and he would have been superb, except something happened in his very first year at law school that changed everything for him. He was coming home one day, and he got caught in a massive storm. This is July 1505, a massive storm, and a lightning bolt hit the ground just meters from where he was lying, cowering in the mud, and he cried out a prayer to St. Anne. This is the medieval church time. They pray to patron saints all the time. St. Anne was the patron saint of miners and of travelers. So he is dead scared. He's going to die. He has always had a very tender conscience and is scared stiff of dying and ending up before God as the judge and being banished forever and ever and ever because he thinks he's totally wicked. And so he make, cries out as he's cowering in the mud to St. Anne, St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. And he survives the storm. There's no more lightning. And so because he's a man who actually follows through on what he vows, he becomes a monk. His dad is furious. His dad actually won't speak to him for a few years until he's become a priest and, and takes his first, leads his first mass as the first time his father will reconnect with him. He was so disappointed because Martin, as a lawyer, would raise the standard of living of their whole family. Martin, as a monk, will give everything he has away. That's part of being a monk. Plus, he'll get the stupid haircut, which is never a good thing. So... Martin Luther becomes a monk. He's about 22 years old at this point. But his problem is, as I've described this first period of his life, he struggles with sin. Becoming a monk only heightens his realization of all of God's commands and everything he's meant to do as a good Christian and how badly he fails at living up to the standard. And so he's horrified. What the monks had to do every day was have confession with their superior. Martin did more confession than any other monk. His, uh, his superior, a guy called Stalpes, says that Martin would sometimes be in the confessional for six hours because the idea was if you were to get forgiven by God, you had to confess your sin, but to confess your sin, you had to remember every single one. So he would sit in a confessional for hours trying to think of every single thing he might have done wrong, including his attitude and his thoughts, so that he could confess it and give and ask for forgiveness. It got to the point where Stalpes wrote one day that he actually, in exasperation, said to Martin, for goodness sake, Martin, why don't you murder someone or commit adultery so you've got something to confess? It was frustrating for everyone else. But Martin was utterly uh, convinced that he was a sinner before a holy God, and he was terrified of God as a judge. But he would write later in his life, that at this period in his life, he hated God. 
As a monk, you would have thought he would love God, and he did not. He was so terrified of this judge, judging God who was going to judge all sin that he hated him and was absolutely terrified of him. Stalpes, his superior, decided Martin needed some help, and so in 1510, he sent him to Rome. So Martin's about 27, late 20s at this point, and he visits Rome, which hopefully would help him because that's where the Pope was and that's where the church was, and it would hopefully open Martin's eyes to how wonderful the church was. It did exactly the opposite. It took months to travel there. He was in Rome for about a month. But the decadence of Rome at this point was just horrendous. The papacy had become incredibly bad in about 150 years before Martin Luther was born. At one point, there were three popes, all claiming to be the pope at the same time. They'd bankrupted the pope. The current pope, when he visited in 1510, was a guy called Julius II, who preferred being a soldier than a pope. So he dressed in armor and waged war against all of his enemies in the name of God. He virtually drove the papacy into bankruptcy, and by the time Martin turns up in, in, in Rome to have a look at the glorious church of God, it's, it's shocking. He comes across priests who rush through the mass as quick as they can to get back to whatever else they were doing. He finds brothel houses of prostitutes who are there only to serve the priests who come from all over the world. It was absolutely decadent. And Martin left Rome more frustrated with and more struggling with not only now his sin, but the sin of the entire church that he was a part of. Stalpes didn't know what to do with him now, and so he decided maybe the best thing for Martin would be to get into the Bible for himself. As a monk, you didn't study the Bible, you studied church theology and teaching. But Stalpes thought, well, maybe what would help Martin is to read a Bible, and so he gave him a Bible, and Martin did his studies for his doctorate and got a PhD. Actually, giving him a Bible was the worst thing in the world because what Martin found in the Bible didn't measure up to all of the teaching that he'd been given and actually sent things rolling in a way that Stalpes was not prepared for. In 1512, he's almost 30, he gets his PhD and Stalpes decides Martin needs a distraction from his sin. And so he uh, puts him forward as a professor in a little town in eastern Germany called Wittenberg. This is where Martin Luther will live for the rest of his life. It's a university that has just recently been founded by the prince there, Prince Frederick. And he goes there as the professor of theology. By the time he dies, the University of Wittenberg will be one of the biggest universities in all of Europe. And it will be because of the fame of one professor that all of these people flock there to study under, and it's Martin Luther. But he gets there in 1512, and he is still struggling with his sin. He still has found no answer to the longing in his heart to find peace with a God who he thinks hates him and is after him. But what happens in Wittenberg as a professor of theology is he now has time to wrestle with the Bible. And he begins a series of lectures. He teaches in ethics, but then he jumps into the Bible itself and he does lectures for a couple of years through the Psalms and then Romans, and then Galatians. By the time he has finished working through those books, he has grappled with what the gospel actually should be. And he starts to understand that the church has lost its way, and in the protest has lost the message of the good news about Jesus. These years, these middle years of his life, 
are years of grappling with the gospel, and it's in the middle of these years that this great event happens, which is the 500th anniversary this week. He nails up these theses on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. I used to think, when I first heard and read about Martin Luther, that this thesis that he the statement that he nailed up there was like this massive statement declaring that the Catholic Church was wrong and they'd lost the gospel and this was the gospel. That's actually not the case. Martin Luther was in process through these years and it's only about four years later after this that he's actually got it all sorted and got his theology clear and is moving forward. He's At this point, he is protesting about one thing. It's called indulgences. That's the little slip of paper that that lady was holding at the beginning of the movie clip that she had purchased in a church. Here we go. This is a copy of an indulgence from uh, about a century after Martin Luther. An indulgence is a slip of paper given by the church to say that the person holding it, who's got their name on it, is given some time off out of purgatory. Now, in Catholic doctrine, there is heaven and hell, and in the middle is purgatory. So heaven is where all the really holy people go. To be honest, it's probably not any of us, all right? It's the, it's the super Christians, the people who are amazingly holy. They go straight to heaven. People who go straight to hell are people who are outside the Catholic Church or who commit what are called mortal sins, like the really bad ones. They go to hell. Everyone else, the great unwashed masses, which is you and me, quite frankly, we go to purgatory. This is the Catholic doctrine. And in purgatory, you're going to end up in heaven one day, but there's no way you're ready to meet with a holy God just yet. And so purgatory is a refining place that of unlimited time, they don't say how long, it's however long you need to be purified from all of your sins and wickedness so that you can then get into heaven. So ultimately you get there, but purgatory is kind of the purification place for many years. And indulgence lessens your time in purgatory. And over time, the church developed theology around indulgences. You could get an indulgence for, um, for prayers, for particular prayers you prayed. You could get an indulgence for visiting a holy site, for going on a pilgrimage. You could get an indulgence for doing good work. So basically, any good stuff you did could be credited to your account and limit your time in purgatory. This isn't biblical, by the way, if you're just wondering about that. But this is what was taught. About 100 years before Luther was born, the church added something else. They added the idea that another way you could earn an indulgence was by giving the church money. And by the time Luther was a priest under Julius II, this warrior pope, and then his successor, Leo X, they ramped this up majorly because this becomes a major money spinner for the church. About the time that Luther visited Rome, they had begun building a new church building. They believed they held the bones of some of the leading apostles, and they felt they needed to have a church building that really showed that and was fitting, a fitting resting place for the bones of these apostles. And so Julius and his predecessor had started a building program that Pope Leo uh, X wanted to continue. This is a... uh, a wood etching of the building program. This was done around about the time Luther died, around the 1550 kind of mark. And I wonder if you know what that building is. If you can recognize this from the the etching. It's this building. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The symbol of the Roman Catholic Church. And the irony of it 
is that the money that was raised to build this was actually what caused the Protestant Reformation and the splitting of the Roman Catholic Church. So it's kind of an irony of history. So what happened is the, the foundations of this building had been laid and nothing else. And Leo needed to raise money, Pope Leo. And so a German archbishop came to him by the name of Albert and said, Leo, I don't know if he called him Leo, he probably called him your holiness or something, but anyway, Leo sounds cool. Leo, mate, I'd like to be the archbishop of another district. He was already the archbishop of two. He wanted to be the archbishop of a third one. Now, that was illegal under church law, but Albert came to the Pope and said, could I buy a third archbishop seat? And Pope Leo said, how much are you offering? And Albert named a substantial fund which would help build this. And so Leo decided to go against his own church law and sell the rights to, for, for Albert to be an archbishop of a third area. So the way that Albert paid for that is he got a loan from the bankers, but Leo, as part of the agreement, allowed him to start to sell a special indulgence that was worth a lot of years out of purgatory uh, right through the, the area of Germany. Germany was not a united country at this point. It's a lot of whole little uh, principalities and areas. And so Leo says to Albert, right, I'll let you be archbishop, you pay me all that money, and then you can sell these indulgences to raise money to pay back your loan. 50% of the takings went to Albert to pay off his loan, because he was now the archbishop of three areas. 50% of the takings went to Leo. So Leo is on a really good dig, which, by the way, is why this looks so magnificent because they raised a bucket load of, of, of money. Cartloads of coins headed from Germany to Italy and funded the building of the Basilica in Rome. The problem is, this is horrific. And even modern-day Roman Catholic historians now look back on this era of the church and, and speak out against it, because this is not what even Roman Catholic theology was really all about. But this is the place that it had got to. And so Luther begins to protest. What Albert did, the archbishop, is he went and found a German friar, monk, by the name of Johann Titzel. Titzel was the Dale Carnegie of the medieval world. If you wanted anything sold, this was the guy to do it. He was a legendary salesman. And he developed a whole sales technique of going into German villages and they would act out how petrified and horrible it was for people in purgatory, in the flames of purgatory as they were being purified. And Tetzel would get on the stage and he would say, imagine your mother in those flames, and your father, and your grandparents. Don't, can you hear their cries calling to you, my son, my daughter, won't you relieve my suffering just a little bit? And Tetsu would say, all you need to do is put in your coin and take your indulgence and you can free them. In fact, it was the first marketing jingle. He came up with an advertising jingle. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> and he was incredible. He sold thousands of indulgences. But he raised the anger of a monk and a professor of theology named Martin Luther. He wasn't allowed, Titzel wasn't allowed into the area of Saxony where the Luther lived, but many of his people crossed the river and went and bought an indulgence from Tetzel in the next town. 
and brought them back just as you saw on that movie clip. And Luther was outraged. And so Luther wrote what are called the 95 Theses. This is what he nailed to the door 500 years ago this coming Tuesday. What you'll notice is they're quite short. They're not very long at all. They're just sentences. That's what a thesis is. It's just a statement. They're 95 statements that Luther wrote out about what he thought was wrong with this abuse of indulgences. Now, I never understood this before I researched this. This is not a statement about the gospel. This is not a statement about the church. This is not, he's not arguing against the Pope at this point. He's not even saying the doctrine of purgatory is wrong or indulgences are bad. All he is arguing against in this document is that selling them like Tetzel is selling them is wrong. That was his protest. You can't sell time out of purgatory. That Tetzel was going, I'll even sell you an indulgence for a future sin. You want to go commit adultery? I'll give you an indulgence for that now before you've even done it. And, and Luther's horrified by that. So Luther writes these statements in protest and nails them into the wall. Now, here's what's important. You would have seen in the movie clip, the door had already had a number of sheets of paper all over it. That's because the church door in the village at the time was the public notice board for the village. And so by nailing these onto the church door, Luther's going public with this. But he doesn't write these in German. He writes these in Latin. This is not for everyone in the village to read. This is for his fellow scholars and his fellow priests. He's calling them to come and debate with him about whether what Tetzel is doing is right or not. He's not trying to change the church. He's not trying to reform against the Pope. He's not trying to lead a revolution. He's just trying to have a scholarly debate among the scholars about whether this abuse, is what he thinks, should be going on or not. The problem is, as you saw at the end, someone, and we don't know who, whipped them off the church door and translated them into German so that everyone could read them. And then went to a printer because the printing press had been invented about 50 years before and printed off thousands of them and circulated them for free around Germany. And suddenly, Martin Luther's scholarly debate had gone nuts and everyone over Germany was reading his protest. Everyone was reading the points that he was making and agreeing with them because part of what fueled this was religious anger about where the Roman Catholic Church had gone, and part of what fueled this was German nationalism. All these poor people in Germany were sick of their money going down to Rome. And so all of this inflamed and built. But Martin was still in process. He was still grappling with the gospel and what that meant. And it was only in the next couple of years, as, as the church sent some scholars to debate with him, that he started to develop a far wider thought. Because the scholars that the Roman church sent came and basically said this to Martin, shut up. The archbishop knows and the pope knows and they're both happy with it, so be quiet. All that did for Martin Luther was to go, well, hold on a minute, how can they do that? Where in the Bible does it say that? Who gave the Pope authority to do that? And so what happened is, by, the, by them not actually engaging Luther in the discussion about the abuse, but basically saying, Martin, you have no right, the Pope's authorized it, so that's the end of the story, that made Luther go, well, hold on a minute, that is not the end of the story. 
Who said the Pope can do that? Where in the Bible is this? Hold on, where's purgatory? How do we find peace with God? How do we be saved? And over the next couple of years, he developed a theology of rediscovering what we would say is the good news of grace. Not by works. Not by the good things we do. And there's no such thing as purgatory. In 1520, he then released a few books that just sold like wildfire. And it started to put out a far bigger theology of the conclusions he was coming to. In response to that, Pope Leo sent what was called a papal bull, B-U-L-L. It was not a cow. It was another official piece of paper. This piece of paper started off with the words, a wild boar is loose in the vineyard of the Lord, meaning Luther. Luther was the wild boar. And this paper gave Luther 60 days once it got to Germany, which would take a few months. Once it got to Germany and Luther read it, he had 60 days to recant everything he had written or he would be excommunicated. Now, under Catholic theology, if you were excommunicated, that means you will have no salvation. You will go to hell and suffer torment for eternity. So that was the threat lying over Luther. The papal bull took five or six months to get to Germany. So it didn't get to him until the end of 1520, and here's what Luther did with it. He burned it. He probably didn't burn it in a village. Probably the, the best sources say they went out to a massive oak tree on the outskirts of Wittenberg, and about a 1,000 of his university students came with him, and they built a massive bonfire, and they threw the Pope's edict onto the bonfire, and they threw a bunch of theology books that they now no longer agreed with, and they had a big party. And that's what he thought of what the Pope had said. So he had now broken with Rome. The final break came a few months later. The emperor uh, was a guy called Charles V. Um, Germany was not united. So Germany's all these little principalities all over the place, but over them all was, was called the Holy Roman Emperor. And so Charles, he ruled Spain and the Netherlands and Austria, and then he was over all of these states in, in Germany as well. And he summoned Martin Luther to appear before him at what is called the Diet of Worms. Now, that is not something you should try if you're wanting to lose weight, all right? Um, a diet is a parliament, and that's actually worms. So you say all of you know, the German words with a V, apparently. I don't speak German, but anyway, that's what I was told. So he was summoned to appear before the parliament of, of the empire in this town called Worms. He went there because Charles gave him a guarantee of safe passage, that he would guarantee his safety and Martin could come with no threat to his life. Now, to understand whether that's trustworthy or not, a century before, there was another, uh, another priest in Czechoslovakia who had come up with similar ideas as Luther. His name was Jan Hus. And Hus was also summoned to a meeting like this and given a guarantee of safe passage. But when he got there, his views were decried as heresy, and then they decided as a heretic, the guarantee didn't apply to him, and so they burned him alive at the stake. So a century later, Luther has now been invited and given a guarantee of safety, and he has no guarantee necessarily that they will honor that. So Luther goes... An incredibly courageous act. He goes knowing he could end up being burned alive as a heretic for his beliefs. 
but he goes anyway. He walks into this massive meeting. The emperor is in his full regalia. There is massive amounts of German princes everywhere, cardinals and bishops and archbishops of the Roman Catholic Church, heaps of noblemen, uh, two or three hundred Spanish soldiers. And he walks into this room, and they've set up a table to one side with all of the books and the pamphlets that he has written. And the lawyer steps forward, who is prosecuting him, and says, are you Martin Luther, and have you written all of these? And Luther checks them all and says, yes, I wrote those. And he says, will you recant? And Luther's taken by surprise. Luther thought he was coming to have a discussion. There's no discussion. It's, will you recant? And Luther ends up asking for 24 hours because he's kind of not ready for that. And so he takes 24 hours, he withdraws to his rooms, he talks to his friends, and he prays. The next night he comes back in. And the lawyer steps forward, are these your works? Yes, they are. Will you recant? And Luther says, no. I can't recant these ones because these are writings about what the Christian life is about, and you probably all agree with them. I can't recant these ones for some other reason, and I won't recant the rest of them. And then Luther makes this speech. This is his most famous speech. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, because I trust neither the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known they have erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And then in the written statement that came out later, there were some words added that aren't in the, probably what he said, but they were added in. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. He has just drawn a line in the sand, knowing he could well be taken out to a bonfire and be the guy on the top. Instead, Charles, to his credit, condemns him for heresy and treason, but says, I will honour my safe conduct. You can return home. But when you reach home, you're fair game. For the rest of his life, Martin Luther has a death sentence hanging over him because that's the penalty for heresy. For the next 20-something years of his life then, he is now fully broken with Rome. The Pope's excommunicated him, the emperor has put a death sentence on him, and he really doesn't leave Wittenberg too much. He reforms the church and sets up the church, but there are probably three key things that happen in this last era of his life. I quickly want to touch on them. Number one, on his way home from Wittenberg, he's safe, his life is safe until he gets home. On his way home, the cart that he's riding on is going through a forest and five horsemen suddenly charge up and say, are you Martin Luther? And he is, and they force him to get out of the cart and onto a horse and they ride away. Martin Luther disappears for almost a year. And the word goes out that someone's kidnapped him, he's died, something's gone wrong. What actually happened is that Prince Frederick, his prince, has captured him on the way home, made it look like it was his enemies so that he can hide away and be safe from being assassinated. He is taken as a prisoner to this castle, Wartburg. And he lives there for almost a year in disguise. He grows his hair out, the ring of hair disappears, which is good. He wears normal clothes, he's given a false name, and he lives there for almost a year. And he starts to write, and he works, and he develops his theology, he begins to write his book. But in Wartburg Castle, he works on 
what ends up being probably his greatest gift in terms of the Reformation. In 11 weeks, he translates the New Testament from the original Greek language into German. And in the next decade, he will work with some other people to also translate the Old Testament until in 1534, the German Bible is published. The German is so good. It was not the first German Bible that someone did, but the German was so good because Luther took the various dialects from all over these areas where they spoke German but all different, and he used the best phrases and the best words and the best terms from different places and wove them all together into a German Bible that linguists now say was the birth of the modern German language. That's how sharp Luther was. But this was one of his greatest gifts. He gave the German people God's word in their own language. Not for the scholars to read, but for ordinary men and women that they could read in words and phrases that they could understand. It was an incredible gift, and he did the New Testament in 11 weeks. Second significant thing that happened to him in this stage is that Luther, one of the theological conclusions he came to during this time was that the Roman Catholic Church on, uh, teaching on celibacy was wrong. The Catholic Church held that marriage was important, but the godliest, most spiritual people, pastors, should not get married because of their dedication to Jesus. And as Luther taught and read the Bible, he came to the conclusion that isn't even biblical. And so he became a champion of marriage. And he said, priests, pastors are allowed to get married. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so he increasingly started to have letters from monks and nuns all over Germany who were in areas of Germany were ruled by Catholic princes. But they wanted to kind of escape. They'd embraced the gospel that Luther was talking about and, and they wanted to get out of where they were and so Luther helped them. He got one letter a couple of years after this Bible came out uh, from a group of nine nuns. They were in another part of Germany that was ruled by a Catholic prince who was really hard line. He said, any monk or nun who tries to leave and give up their vows will be killed. And so these nine nuns wrote to Dr. Luther and said, we've embraced the gospel you're talking about. We've come to faith in Jesus. We want to get out of here. Will you help us? And so he sent a merchant friend of his who was a, a fisher, fisherman, no, not a fisherman, a, a seller of fish. And so this man went there with his wagon filled with barrels that he used to transport fish. And he smuggled nine women out in fish barrels. I mean, goodness knows what they smelled like when they arrived. But he got them out safely. And they'd all be nuns, but they were now convinced they were allowed to marry. And Luther found husbands for eight of the nine women. Except for one, Katharina von Bora. And he tried to marry Katharina off to a couple of old guys. And she was going, no. And partly she was going, no, because his choices were really, he wasn't that great a matchmaker, to be fair to him. But partly she was saying no, because she had decided she wanted to marry Dr. Luther himself. And she did. In 1525, Martin Luther married his Katie. And she changed his life. He was a typical academic with his head in the clouds. He didn't eat properly. He didn't look after himself. He wrote later that he would change his beard or make his beard once a year. Now, 
This is not a teenager, understand. This is a 42-year-old man. His beard was filled with lice and fleas because he did not care for it. He was too busy writing theology and studying the Bible to worry about that kind of stuff. Katie just sorted him out and cleaned him up, and she was a strong woman who would stand up to him. He, he called her jokingly, my Lord, Katie, because she just sorted him out. But they had a wonderful marriage. They were deeply in love. They had six wonderful kids, four of which survived to adulthood. Two of them tragically died young. But they had a great marriage. And it changed Luther because... Luther hadn't, didn't think he would get married. People had asked him, and he said, no, it's okay for pastors to marry, but I don't think I should because I've got a death penalty hanging over my head. But she won his heart, and he married. The final massive thing that happened during this era was in 1530, they had one of these other parliaments because the uh, Muslim Turks had invaded Europe. They were now, by now, they'd swept up through southeastern Europe. They were besieging the city of Vienna. And Emperor Charles needed everyone, all of the nobles, all of the princes to unite together for this battle. And so he summoned everyone to the town of Augsburg for a parliament. Luther couldn't go, so his colleague uh, Philip Melanchthon went. And the German princes who by now had embraced Luther's theology, they had become Protestants. They asked Melanchthon to write a statement of faith that they could present to the emperor. So Melanchthon wrote one, sent it to Luther. Luther said, that's brilliant. And Melanchthon gave it to the princes, and these princes come before the emperor in the scene, and they bring the statement of faith, which is still the statement of faith of the Lutheran church today, and they sign it in front of the emperor and say, we will go into battle for you if you will guarantee our religious freedom to be Protestant. And while the death penalty was never lifted on Luther, it meant that Protestantism and freedom of religion began to be allowed around the empire. Luther died about 16 years after that. And there were many other reformers as well as him. There were other people leading these kinds of things in different cities around Europe, but it was Luther who was the one who pioneered so much of this. And the reason I tell you his story, and I want to quickly look at his legacy, is because of this really key point that I want you to hear. We stand on the shoulders of the reformers. We stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther. The faith that he came to, the faith that he grappled with and finally came to espouse, is actually the faith that you and I hold to. These are the beliefs that are core to who we are. And we so often think that they just come in a vacuum, that everyone's always believed this. No, not everyone's always believed this. The stuff that you and I believe has been struggled for and fought for, and people like Jan Hus died for, so that you and I can believe what we believe. And it's incredibly important to understand the history of where we have come from. And that event 500 years ago started the ball rolling so that you can believe in the gospel that you have embraced if you're a follower of Jesus. Today, you stand on the shoulders, and I stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther, and all of the other reformers who have gone before us. Very quickly, let me flesh that out, what that means in terms of his legacy. But before I talk about his legacy, I want to talk quickly about his failures. Because we can sometimes make these people appear to be so much better than they are, and they weren't. Martin Luther was a very flawed guy. And if you read his critics, 
you will read about a number of significant flaws, and many of them are quite true. Let me, I want to highlight four really fast. Martin Luther had a very harsh tongue. You read some of the stuff he wrote. When he's writing against his opponents, he is telling them that they are as thick as a brick. He doesn't know what God was doing when he even created them. But they are so stupid, he can't believe they would even write that stuff. And that's how he would write. And in many ways, you've got to admire his strength for standing up and what he believed him. But my goodness, he's harsh. Now, some of that is the culture he was in. That's how many of them would write in debates. But Luther is probably harsher than almost anyone else in this era. He could be very, very acidic. Secondly, he had uncouth habits. I mean, I told you all about his sleeping habits and what his bed looked like. Among the things that Katie did in their home, she, she made a, um, planted a fabulous garden and an incredible orchard, um, and she also brewed an amazing beer. And in, in their home, they would, um, they would have students staying with them. They lived in this converted monastery, so they had their own six kids, and all these theology students were kind of boarding with them, and they had this massive dining table, and after dinner, they'd sit around and talk theology and drinking beer. And there were times, I didn't know this until this last couple of weeks, but Katie had to reprimand Martin for how much beer he would drink during the theology discussions. He was not a picture-perfect saint of a man. And we, we, we can't make him like that. Thirdly, he had an uncompromising nature. I said there were other reformers in other cities. There was a guy who was leading at about the same time uh, a contemporary of Luther by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. He was in Zurich. And in uh, 1529, Zurich, uh, sorry, Zurich, Zwingli and Luther met to talk to try and make sure the Protestant movement stayed, stayed connected. And they didn't. They couldn't do it. They had a falling out over the nature of communion. They had a different view on what communion represented. And I've read some of that, and I'm going like, really? You, you, you defend the gospel, and, and, and you, you have an argument about that? And part of Luther's great strength was his uncompromising nature. And part of his weakness was his uncompromising nature. He found it very, very hard to work with people. His greatest failure, though, was tragic. Towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called Against the Jews. It was a classic piece of anti-Semitic writing. He didn't oppose the Jewish people on the basis of ethnicity. He opposed them on the basis of religious faith. Early in his ministry, when he first rediscovered the gospel and began preaching the gospel of grace and Jesus, he had the expectation that Jewish people would finally understand the good news and they would embrace Jesus and come to faith. And a few did, but many did not. By the end of his life, he is old and cantankerous and grumpy. And he writes a book called Against the Jews. That is, quite frankly, horrific. The worst part of the story, though, is that 400 years later, a movement would come up in Germany called the Nazis. And Adolf Hitler would take that book by Martin Luther and use it as part of his propaganda for the final solution. One of the reasons that many Germans went along with the Nazi propaganda in the early years was because Hitler quoted the German hero Martin Luther. Doesn't mean Luther's responsible for the Holocaust. He would have been horrified by that. That is not what he was for. 
but it is a major stain in his life. Nevertheless, in spite of those flaws, his legacy is huge. Let me run through this really quick. Number one, his legacy includes a Bible you can read. If you have read the Bible some point in the last week, just sat down and read the Bible on a phone or your Bible, you stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther. Because before Luther and others like him, you weren't allowed to read the Bible for yourself. And to read the Bible in your own language is an incredible privilege that for centuries Christians could not do. The reason you get to do that is because of Luther and others like him. Whenever you read the Bible, you stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther. Whenever we stand here and sing, we stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther. Before Luther came along, you would turn up in church and you would listen to the priests chant. You would not sing a word. Martin Luther, reading the Old and New Testaments, discovered that music is part of our worship of God as his people. And whenever you stand and sing as you have done so today, you are standing on the shoulders of Luther. You are also doing that whenever you listen to the preaching of God's word. In the Catholic Church at this point in time, the main thing was the mass. The altar took center stage. The priest might give a three or five minute homily occasionally. Luther and the other reformers said, no, the main thing is the word of God. And the fact that you now sit and listen to a sermon is because of Martin Luther. And by the way, the reason you sit is Luther as well. I hadn't realized this until listening to a lecture this week by one of my old professors, but he had just worked out that actually if you had gone to a church before the Reformation, you would have stood. The reason you're sitting today is Luther, because he decided that God's people didn't need a three or, three or five-minute homily, they needed a 40-minute sermon. But you can't listen to that while standing up. So it was Luther who brought chairs into churches to let you sit. But it's not only church. The reason you and I value marriage today, we just have an assumption that it is a good thing to marry. That comes from Luther. Because until Luther came along, if you were really spiritual, the most godly people around chose celibacy. And Luther came along and said, no, 1 Corinthians says singleness and marriage is a gift. And he elevated marriage. He elevated the role and the blessing of children. It was Luther who first started to teach about the privilege of a Christian home. It was Luther who revolutionized the Christian understanding of work. Again, the most pious people around before Luther comes along are the priests. You know, the pastor is the pinnacle of the world. And Luther comes and says, no. But his line is, and we'll look at this more in a few weeks, when the milkmaid milks the cow, she glorifies God. He took every role and every job and said, you can glorify God as you farm and as you build and as you teach and as you raise children. That is a vocation, a calling of God. The greatest legacy of Luther, though, is the gospel. Luther, who had struggled with sin for so long, came to realize in his lectures and study in Romans and Galatians that it's all about the gospel. 
And the gospel is not that you have to work hard. The gospel is not that you have to pray certain prayers. The gospel is not that God will accept you after you've been purified for years and years and years. The gospel is that God accepts you in his grace, simply by faith. The passage that Luther stumbled on is this one. As he went through the book of Romans, he read these words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And it was this next verse. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther had always thought that the righteousness of God was his moral perfection that made him totally holy and separate from us. And it was only as he wrestled with Romans 1.17 that Luther came to realize that is true of God. But the righteousness here is a gift that God gives. He gifts his perfect righteousness to human beings. And he gifts it not based on our works. It is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. That's legacies. That's, that's Luther's legacy. And in the next five weeks, that's what we're going to unpack as we stand on the shoulders of the reformers. The reformers came up with five statements. They're called the five solas. In Latin, the word alone is, is the word sola. And they used these five phrases to crystallize the, the good news that they rediscovered. If you want to have peace with God, if you want to have forgiveness of sin, you want, to, you want to connect with your creator. It's not about indulgences. It's not about attending church. It's not about praying certain prayers. It's not about doing good works. On the basis of scripture alone, it is coming to Christ alone and accepting his grace alone through faith alone to God's glory alone. That's the gospel. And that is what the Protestant Reformation reclaimed. And that is the legacy of Luther. And in the next five weeks, we're going to walk through sola scriptura and sola Christos and sola gratia and sola fide and sola Deo gloria. And we're going to celebrate this legacy we've been given because we stand on the shoulders of Luther. Our time is gone because I've gone too long. Aren't you thankful, though, that you're sitting? <laughs> we were going to sing a song to close, but we're actually we're out of time, so I'm going to can that. And I'm simply going to pray. And my prayer is that we would understand the story that we are part of. We don't jump just from the cross to today. We stand in the line of people, men and women some famous, some completely unknown, who fought for this good news, for this gospel of grace. And that is a treasure and a heritage that has been passed down through the years, and it is now ours. And it's our duty to pass that on, to guard that good news and to understand it clearly and to pass it to the next generation. So I want to pray that we will do that that we will celebrate the heritage that we have as we stand on their shoulders because our faith is their faith. Father, thank you for flawed heroes 
like Martin Luther. Thank you that even though in many ways he was a mess and a very, very flawed being, even though especially his writings on the Jews are actually horrific, that doesn't cancel out the legacy that he gave. Thank you for all of the men and women of the Protestant Reformation who rediscovered the beauty and the glory of the good news of Jesus, that we can come to you. We can call you our Abba, our Father, not because we are worthy, not because we are good, not because we have earned it, but because we trust in Christ alone. And in your grace alone, that we accept through faith alone, we are counted worthy to be your children, and we're forgiven. Thank you for this treasure that we're given. Just pray that this little series will help us treasure that more and more and more. Thank you for this 500-year celebration. In the name of the Savior who is at the heart of it, Jesus. Amen. That's our service. Guys, thanks for being with us. Um, I think I hear kids out there already, so go grab them if you need to. We're serving tea and coffee as well. Have a great week.